Don't want to work forever? Once you can cover your living expenses with passive income, your day job becomes optional and you reach financial independence. You then have complete control over your time, your money, and your life in general. Spark Rental founders Denny Suplee and Brian Davis, me, are here to help you build rental income, ditch your day job, and do what matters most to you. So on that note, let's jump into today's episode, which, like all of our episodes, was recorded live. Hey guys, Brian Davis here from Spark Rental. I am super pumped to be joined today by Matt Simmons of Sim Capital. Matt, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm pumped to be here. Absolutely. So last week we talked about how the phase out of bonus depreciation will affect you as a real estate investor. This week we're talking all about financial freedom, affordable housing, uh, investing in real estate at, at every level uh, with Matt Simmons. So as you guys join us live, just let us know where you're tuning in from, what your questions are for Matt, and we'll keep the show interactive. So on that note, I'll, I'll give Matt, I'll give you your, your official introduction here. Uh, so Matt Simmons is the founder of Sim Capital, which has done over half a billion dollars in transactions since 2014. Currently owns and operates almost 4,000 doors in multifamily housing and affordable housing, nine different states. So Matt, welcome. Now, I, I always like to rewind the clock when we have a guest and, and have them explain how they got started in real estate investing in the first place. Because, you know, a lot of our audience members uh, are just starting out or, you know, they're just in their first couple of properties. Sure. So I'd love to hear how people got started. So I initially sold a business back in 2006. And when I sold that business, I, I, I basically just took a chunk of my money that I made and rolled it over into buy, starting to invest in my own personal real estate. For me at that time, it was just you know single-family homes. I did start into affordable housing, primarily you know the Section Eight um, segment of the industry, um, and just started kind of building my own personal portfolio. That was so that was the first time I got into actual real estate. The crash in 2008 actually helped me acquire even more properties, and I got them for as we all know, pennies on the dollar, right? Sure. Uh, especially because in in affordable housing, the markets that that I was buying in you saw a lot of those values drop significantly, right? Cleveland, Detroit, you know, some places in the Midwest and stuff like that. And so it really allowed me to kind of accelerate my growth in my personal portfolio during that time, basically all the way through through 2014. And that's, that's when, you know, Sim Capital was founded at that point. So it was really just me taking some of the, some of the profits that I had made from my other business and just starting to buy my own real estate, just because I knew it was a good investment. I knew it was something that was a long-term play invest into it. I knew I, I was going to have kids. I wanted something there for my kids in the future. And, and, you know, I wasn't looking to, to make a ton of money quickly. I was just looking to build something over time. No, that makes total sense. And, you know, I understand that you actually have a, a fascinating story about how you became financially free, how you reached financial freedom, financial independence in yeah. your mid thirties. Um, yeah. But there were quite a few uh, rocks and, and pitfalls along the way. So I, I'd, I'd love to hear that story. So uh, yeah, it, it's, it's quite a story. Um, and I love telling it because, and everyone asks about it. So I was fairly successful, at least what I thought in my twenties leading up to 2010. I had another company that I had started after I'd sold my previous one while I was just buying my real estate on the side. And in 2010, I got the bright idea when I turned 30 
that I wanted to go and do one last professional motocross race. So I used to race professional motocross when I, when I, I got signed when I was 17, raced professionally until I was 20, retired after a bad accident. But I got the bright idea in my 30s, like, hey, let's go do one last race just to say, <laughs> just so you could say you did it in your 30s because it's a young person. Yeah, what, what could go wrong? Right, exactly. And so I did. I went out and got my license and I qualified for the last outdoor national here at Steel City in Western Pennsylvania. And I ended up breaking my back uh, in the first moto. Oh, wow. Um, I was just, I, I misjudged something and caused me to have a very bad accident. I actually shattered three vertebrae. I broke my pelvis in two places on the left side, a compound fracture in my right leg. I broke six ribs and just a nasty Oof. concussion. So I was, in, I was in ICU for a week. I was on bed rest for three months. I was in a wheelchair for almost four months. I was on crutches for another few months after that. I mean, the whole, it was a year, year and a half long recovery. I had my business running at the time that all this happened. And I thought I had it set up the way that, you know, a business should be set up. I mean, ideally, a business should be able to function without the owner there. <clears throat> you know, the, the owner should be able to step away and, you know, processes and people should be in place to, to keep things going. I guess I didn't have that set up properly. And so I, I basically, I ended up losing my business and going bankrupt because of that. And because I couldn't go into the office, I couldn't be there hands-on. I couldn't be talking with our client base. I couldn't be helping the growth. Um, and so we were, we were losing clients. We were losing billables. Um, bills weren't being paid, you know, just kind of that whole snowball effect. Um, and ultimately ended up going, going bankrupt because of all. Um, the only thing that got me and my wife at the time and my daughter through all that was my personal real estate portfolio that I had built and was generating me cash flow every single month. That's why when I was completely healed up and I was looking at what I was going to do at that point, the real estate just was kind of the, the no brainer for me that it made sense to go all in on that. And that brings us to the, to the, to the foundation or the forming of Sim Capital in 2014. That's a crazy story. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm so sorry about your injury, but you you look healthy now, and I'm I'm glad to to see that. Yeah, uh, no no real long lasting lingering effects. I mean, I'm a little bit stiff getting up in the morning, and I have some metal in me. But you know, besides that, I I, can't, I, I couldn't. I, it could be. It could have been a lot worse. Let's put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, I I love those sorts of stories where you know investors you know, they had a full-time job or, or a full-time business doing something else. They had a little bit of real estate on the side uh, that they had no plans to really take off as their, their full-time gig, but then yeah. something bad happened. They lost their job. They lost their business, you know, financial crisis hits, whatever. Yep. Uh, and the real estate does kind of carry them through, you know, that that's right. why Denny, my, my co-founder and I, that's why we're so big on building streams of passive income yeah. and particularly diverse streams of passive income. Uh, because you never know what's going to happen. Um, and, you know, the, the more diverse streams of income you have, the more buffeted you are uh, or buffered you are from uh, a crash and any one uh, source of income that you have. So I love that. Yeah, uh, so, yeah. So tell us about Sim Capital and, you know, how you guys got started, you know, what your focus is. Uh, so yeah, walk, walk us through that. Yeah, so 2014, the company was founded, um, and really it was just more of a, a friends and family type of thing. Like, you know, I, I had my personal portfolio of real estate. I knew what I was doing. I knew how to grow it. Other people wanted to invest in the real estate. They didn't have the time. They didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the experience. So we just kind of, you know, created the group for, for them to be able to do that. 
And then it kind of started to, to gain some traction. Word of mouth started gaining some traction. The SEC implemented some of their, their, their changes to allow crowdfunding for real estate and equity involvement in, in crowdfunding and, and ultimately, you know, public marketing with uh, Reg D and 506C to generate outside investors if they're accredited. And so it just kind of grew from that point. You know, we did fund one, which was a very small $5 million fund. Fund two was double that at 10 million. We now have our sixth fund open, which is, that's a $100 million institutional capital fund that's going to take us to a billion dollars in holdings. Like I said earlier, it was a snowball effect to the negative side when, when I was injured. This has been a snowball effect the opposite direction just because, you know, we've proven ourselves. We have a track record. We have a portfolio that's managing. We've, we've been able to meet or exceed our projections for our investor base. And, and that helps that helps grow. You know, and so for us initially, when we first started, it was primarily geared towards multifamily, class B, class C multifamily. And that was the majority of what our focus was, honestly, all the way through the pandemic in 2020. Interestingly enough, you hit on something earlier about creating multiple, you know, additional streams of, of revenue, right? And I 100% agree with you. And I even agree with you so much to the point of you need multiple streams of revenue within the industry that you're in through different asset classes and sectors of the industry, right? And Absolutely. so for me, coming out, you know, as a multifamily operator, 2020 with the pandemic and the rent moratoriums and you know, it, it severely affected us as operators. Now we got through, we didn't miss a single payment to our debt providers. We didn't miss a single payment to our investors. We worked with our tenants to get them through it all. We were able to recoup some of that on the back end through, you know, rental reimbursement from, from the government programs. But we still, I mean, it, it sucked. I mean, it set us back five years, let's be honest, as far as our growth goes. And so I was looking at, okay, how can we create a, a risk hedge coming out of the pandemic for the company that still allowed us to buy and invest in the real estate, but was a different asset class, something that was more of a guarantee so that if, or I should say when, because we all know if the government gets away with it once, they're going to do it again at some point, when they try another rent moratorium, how can I guarantee that we're going to still have uh, income coming in that isn't going to be severely affected by people just deciding, hey, I'm just not going to pay because, well, I can get away with it, right? And so I kind of went back to my roots with real estate investing with the affordable housing um, asset class and said, let's create an offering for affordable housing for investors because it's a different type of asset class. It's a different type of investment for them. It's guaranteed by the government as, as long as the unit passes inspection and there's a tenant in there. We get paid every single month, regardless of whether there's a pandemic, a recession, a depression, whatever it is. You're talking uh, Section 8, Section Section eight, eight. vouchers. Yep, Section 8 vouchers. Yep. And so we, we created that in 2020, well, late 21, early 22. And it really started getting gaining speed during 22. And investors were loving it because they're like, look, I'm invested in multifamily. I'm invested in self-storage. I'm invested in office buildings or whatever it is. But there was really no one else out there offering any sort of affordable housing investment opportunity unless they went and did it themselves or you found a REIT that was specifically focused on that. Um, and so for us, it's just about creating that additional stream of revenue, additional stream of, of income for us and our investors, like you talked about, that gives us a different type of guarantee especially during hard times that you can't get with, with any sort of multifamily or even a lot, any other real estate, to be honest. So 
you know, Denny and I have, have talked on this show many times about Section 8, the good, the bad, the ugly. I have had not great experiences with Section 8 tenants. Yep. I have found that they are much harder on the properties, do more damage to the properties, mm-hmm. that even if they only are responsible for 20% of the rent, 25% of the rent, whatever, they're often still late or still default mm-hmm. on it. So I, I'd like to hear the the counter uh, <laughs> side of that. You know, So t- tell me about what, what you love about Section 8 uh, housing as, as an investor. So let me ask you a couple questions before I actually dive into that. <laughs> Can I sure, do? fire because away. I, I, I pretty I have a feeling I know why you've had those problems. So how are you? Uh, how are you placing tenants? What what kind of background credit checks, eviction checks, criminal history checks were you doing? Were you doing all of them? Yes. Now I say that I have limited experience with Section Eight tenants. I've okay. only worked with a few of them. Okay. One of them I inherited, so I actually didn't do sure. those background checks on that person. Rule I number them. one: never inherit a Section Eight tenant. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. Uh, more recently. It was a partnership deal that one of the partners in the deal was, is a property manager and is managing this particular property. He said that this was, he uh, screened this tenant, ran all those background checks, said that, you know, he believed that this would be a good tenant. Did I personally call their, I did not call their, their uh, personal references myself. I did not. Okay. I only glanced over the reports myself. So, and. uh, Okay, so that okay, so so we'll we'll touch on that here in a minute. My second question is is what kind of security deposit was required from this tenant? Uh, I think just one month's rent. Yeah, although you know, in a lot of states, you know, they put a cap, you know, one and a half months rent, maybe right. two months rent, but you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to get more than like one and a half months yeah. rent from from any tenant. It's been oh, my sure. experience. Sure. Yeah. So there's a couple ways that, that that we really mitigate that risk. Now, again, you're never going to be able to completely mitigate that risk, whether it's Section 8 or multifamily or any other sort of uh, of real estate investment. With sure. Tenant. But the way that we underwrite our tenants is the exact same way we do with our multifamily. They need to pass a full background check, including criminal history, uh, eviction background check, and they have to, they, we, we do a credit pull as well on them. We wouldn't place that same tenant into one of our multifamily properties. We're not putting them into our Section 8 property. And so it, it's, it's, it's a lot of, you go through a lot of applications before you find the right tenant. The good thing is, is there's a lot of applicants out there. There's a lot, the, 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 the demand from voucher holders far exceeds the, the number of properties that are available for them. So, you know, we, we get a dozen to two dozen, uh, you know, applicants per property in a lot of our in a lot of our locations because of that. And again, we go through a lot of them because they don't meet those 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 the background checks. So, uh, you know, as far as criminal history goes, if there's anything more than than, than anything traffic wise, um, we don't we don't place them in, in, in a unit. If they don't have decent credit, we don't place them in a unit. We won't take anyone with a recent bankruptcy, you know, and if they have any sort of eviction at all on their, on their, on their history, it's an immediate, it's an immediate turn now. Well, so that all makes sense. But, you know, so I, I cut my teeth in Baltimore city. I was in lower end neighborhoods right. in a very, very working class city. Yep. Um, and, you know, you, you say that you wouldn't place anyone, uh, any section eight tenant in, uh, a property if you wouldn't also put them in like a class B property. But I mean, in 
in the property, the houses that I was buying, you know, back in the mid 2000s, mm -hmm. I, mean, I wouldn't place a tenant anywhere because none of those people would qualify for class B housing. Um, yeah, I mean, so they, they were all they all had terrible credit. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and so that again, that's that's about going, you know, you go through it's it's about it's not necessarily about uh, quality when it comes to the applications. It's about quantity. You, the more applications you get, the, the better chance you are of, of finding a good tenant to place, which is also why, you know, we ventured into some cities um, to kind of test the markets out. And we found that the demand wasn't nearly enough to be able to meet the way that we underwrite uh, tenants. And so we, we immediately stopped growing into that city because of that. And, and because I was just so going picky. to say, yeah. Yeah. So it, 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 yeah, your point sounds more like uh, a point about the market where I was investing in than yeah. necessarily uh, the, uh, that class of housing. Uh, yeah. I mean, and it is because, you know, if you look at the markets that we're in, like one of our best markets is Cleveland, Ohio, right? And it's one of the areas that we have our biggest concentration of Section 8 properties in. But the number we get, you know, a couple dozen applications for every property that we put that we put up for rent there. And it allows us to really kind of, you know, go through and comb through them and find the right tenant for it. The other thing that we do is that we require them to pay a full month security deposit up front because then they're vested into the property, right? A lot of if, if they're vested into the property themselves, they're less likely. It doesn't eliminate it, like I said, but they're less likely to ruin it and damage it and, and then cause you know, bad living conditions for themselves. And, and we explain this to them like, look, if you ruin the property, it's coming out of your security deposit or what we can, you know, what we can repair is going to be covered out of your security deposit. Also re remember that you have to be inspected yearly. And so if you don't pass inspection because you beat the property up, we're not going to go in and repair it for you and put you and keep you in that property as a tenant. We'll go in and repair it, but we're going to place another tenant. And you're you're going to you're going to not only get removed from the property, you could potentially actually be removed from the housing voucher program now. The way that the program goes, and so when you kind of put the and I don't want to say put a fear of God into them, but when you put a fear of them losing the opportunity to get assisted housing, they tend to take better care of the properties that they live in. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And, you know, I mean, accountability, right? <laughs> uh, just reiterating that they will be held accountable. Yeah. Uh, now, in the, the markets other... where you're investing, does Section yeah. 8 cover 100% of the rent? Uh, or So that's actually a really good question. We tend to try to place tenants, and this also helps us um, cut down on having to chase tenants even for $50. We try to place tenants where... Um, and we choose try to choose tenants where the housing authority will cover 100%, 90% of their, their monthly rent payment. That way it eliminates that need. You know, so a lot of times we'll look towards, you know, single moms that have a couple kids that have very low income on a monthly basis. Um, and it's, it's counterintuitive to the way that most people place tenants in real estate. I mean, most of the time, like when I'm multifamily, you want, a, you want an application to make three times you know, their monthly rent, right? Well, this is completely opposite because you want to guarantee that you're going to get paid every single month. The way to do that is by making sure that the housing authority covers 100%, and if not 100%, as close to that as possible. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, it, it harkens back to what you said a few minutes ago about how when you're uh, renting to Section 8 tenants, uh, tenant screening uh, is just astronomically more important. I mean, it's important Absolutely. with all rental housing, but, yeah. um, but specifically with this asset class, because let, let's be honest, we know, 
and, and I don't want to, I don't want to classify them or, or put a stigma to it, but no. we know the types of, of, uh, of tenants that we're dealing with here. And so if you know that ahead of time, you can, you can eliminate most of these issues that, that, that a lot of section eight landlords and operators have because most section eight landlords and operators, they might have a couple properties here or there, right? It's nothing that is big to them and they don't pay attention. They think, Oh, okay. You know, uh, they're approved for section eight. A lot of times, Section 8 landlords don't even do background or credit checks. They just place a tenant that comes into, you know, as an applicant. They also don't collect security deposits a lot of times. Like we've looked at buying, you know, portfolios of, you know, larger portfolios of 20, 30, 40, 50 units to add to our portfolio at a time to make it easier. And we look at the rent rolls and the landlord collects like a hundred dollars security deposit. Well, if you collect a hundred dollars security deposit, where's the, where's the tenant tied into being liable for any damages because where's the accountability? Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, and I'm, you know, so you go through these rent rolls and you're like, this is ridiculous. And then on top of that, if they only collect on hundred dollars, you know, the types of tenants you're going to inherit, you're going to inherit ones that absolutely destroy the property. And right. so going back to what you said is you inherited a section eight tenant. We will not buy a property that has a section eight tenant already placed in it unless we can run our own new background check ahead of time and rescreen and, them. And re yeah. them ourselves. Yeah. The other thing that we do that I forgot to mention is we do quarterly walkthroughs on every single property. That's great. So we're doing quarterly inspections in every single property that we own to make sure, once again, the tenant knows, hey, you got to take care of this property. And if they know that they're going to have one of our, you know, one of our staff members and property management walking through that property on a quarterly basis, they're going to keep it much nicer. Yeah, no, I, I'm a huge fan of, of regular inspections. And, um, yep. you know, it, it just with Section 8 tenants, it's even more important. It's even more uh, important, 100%. Yeah. yeah. So you 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 said something earlier that, that caught my interest. And while we were talking about choosing the right markets to invest in for Section 8 housing, you, you said right. that Cleveland uh, is one of your best markets. Mm -hmm. So how do you choose good markets for uh, affordable housing, Section 8 housing? Because, you know, I've had bad experiences in uh, more affordable cities like Baltimore, like mm -hmm. Detroit. So how do you choose markets that you think are going to be very promising or profitable for Section 8 housing? So we do a couple of different things when we're looking to grow into new markets. One, we keep our buy box very, very tight. Our buy box is $85,000 to $105,000, three bedroom or more, single family home that's move-in ready. We prefer things that have been at least updated recently, but as long as they're in good condition and they're move-in ready, that's kind of what our buy box is. So then what we do is we take that and we look at the published data from the housing authority with what, you know, what fair market rents are in every city, which is very, just do a Google search if anyone's looking for that, that information because it's all publicly available you can see what the housing authority is going to pay on a monthly basis based off of their fair market rent determination. So we look at that and we look at, can we, can we cash flow? Can we net cash flow a minimum of $650 per door after all expenses are paid, including mortgage, you know, your principal, your interest, your taxes, your insurance, a little bit of vacancy, a little bit of maintenance, et cetera. So if all of those three things kind of align, then we'll, what we'll do is we'll reach out to the housing authority in that market and ask them, you know, what's their timelines like? How quickly are they able to turn around applications? How many staff do they have? How many inspectors do they have? How quickly are they able to get inspections done and then re-inspections done if they're required? And because what, what's really important to us is being able to buy a property, 
get the few things fixed that we need to fix on it to pass inspection, which a lot of time is like, you know, GFCI outlets and grounded electrical outlets and, you know, railings on steps four or more, you know, things like that. And then get a tenant in there and get inspection done and get approved and cash flowing within 30 days. It's really important that we get all that done in 30 days. A, because of the volume that we're buying and B, we obviously we have investors that we have to, to answer to. And so if all of those things align, then what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll kind of test that market out. We'll buy one or two properties in that new market and see how everything goes. One of the biggest things that we have to do when we're moving into a new market, besides all those things, is we have to find boots on the ground people. We have to find contractors. We have to find maintenance people. We have to find the people that can do the walkthrough um, you know, with the housing authority checklist for us, you know, all that stuff. So we kind of work on that before we actually go into the, the market and start buying properties so that we have all that lined up. Then we'll start, you know, reaching out to agents, kind of, you know, letting them know what we're looking to do. We're looking to test the market, find a property or two, buy it and see how the process goes. Um, and if things align, great, we'll continue to buy more. And then we kind of go in heavy and we'll buy, you know, 10, 20, 30 a month in, in that new market, you know, the first month, second month, third month, and so on. Um, but there's been some markets that we found that just don't work well. Detroit being one of them. Um, not and, and there's a couple problems with Detroit. And, I, and, and the biggest problem with Detroit is their, their, their infrastructure on the buildings, on the properties is, is horrible. So like very, very old plumbing, very, very old sewer lines. So almost every property there has to have a sewer line replaced. You're six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars right there. The housing authority takes a while. On top of that, you know, it takes them 45 to 60 days by the time they get a packet, you know, uh, in they're able to process it and then they reach out and they schedule your your inspection, you know, you're 60 days before you can start cash flowing. They pay well, they pay 15, I think it's 15 this year, 2023 is like 15 and change for a three bedroom, um, you know, $1,500 and change for a three bedroom. Um, but all of your maintenance costs because of, because of the, the age of the, of the, the underlying infrastructure in Detroit just eats up your cash flow. So it's not a good market to be in, um, because of that. Um, you know, and so you, the, but unfortunately you don't know those things until you start testing them out. You know, obviously we're building a database as we continue to do this, because there's not a lot of big operators out there like us in affordable housing. Um, mainly because of there's just, just a lot more moving parts to it, right? Um, and so we're building out a database as we do it, so we have something of substance for people to to use, use and and lean on down in the future. But for us, a lot of times with these new cities, it's it's a lot of trial and error to to, to figure it out because no one's really done it at the scale that we're looking to do it before. No, it makes perfect sense, and I love how systematized your approach is uh, in evaluating new markets. Um, in experimenting with new markets. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, it's, it's mom and pop investors struggle with that. But uh, as you grow to become an institutional investor, like Sim Capital, you know, you can build out those systems and, and really refine uh, that that narrow box, like you talked about, and, you know, have the, the 50 point checklist that you yep. go through and evaluate any new market. And uh, I yep. love it. And so it, we, it's a systemized approach for everyone here. I mean, they know, they know what they need to do. And, and it's just a rinse and repeat type of thing. Even in the markets that we're, that we're in heavily that we grow in and we're continuously or continuing to add to, you know, every property is the same process, you know, from, from A to Z and it's just a rinse and repeat type of thing. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the hard part in many ways is building out that system. And once right. you have a system that works, then like you said, you can just rinse and repeat and yep. keep adding properties. And it's a lot easier from that point forward. Yeah, exactly. So we included a link here to simcapital.com uh, in yep. the in the comments. Matt, do you have any parting words of wisdom for the audience before we call this episode complete? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of most people on here already kind of know that real estate is a good investment. Um, I think one of the biggest things to focus on is in the next, I would say, 18 to 24 months, I think we're probably going to see one of the best opportunities that we've seen since 2008 um, to really... Uh, grow your real estate holdings, grow your portfolio, um, take advantage of, of what's going to be coming. I don't think there's going to be a market crash. And I've been saying that I've never thought that personally, but I do think there's going to be segments of the industry that are going to allow investors who are willing to uh, kind of put the, put the pedal in the metal um, when most are kind of pulling off uh, the gas or even putting the brake on to kind of get that leg up over their over the competition. And so these are the times where that's 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 what you need to do. When most people are pulling, you know, putting the foot on the brake, you need to be doubling down and, and, and putting the putting that pedal, that gas pedal to the floor. Um, so just know that there's going to be a lot of scary headlines out there over the next 18, 24 months. And just know that's exactly what they are. They're they're meant to scare people. They're meant to keep you kind of, you know, down in that never ending cycle that most people are in use this time to really get that leg up over everyone else because there's going to be a lot of opportunities. So as far as advice, that's probably the best that I could give right now with where we are all are uh, in the current economic cycle and, and what we're looking at in the future. I love that. And yeah, it reminds me of the Warren Buffett quote, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Uh, and you know, I, this is, this is something that I hear real estate investors say all the time during a, a bull market with, with housing, you know, like all throughout the, the 20 teens, everyone's like, yeah. Oh, well, you know, housing's too expensive. You know, prices are too inflated. You know, I'm going to wait until prices drop and then I'm going to buy. And then of course, now that prices are dropping in a lot of markets. And by the way, we put a link in the comments here, everybody for, uh, an interactive map to where you can see where which cities have home prices that are dropping. Uh, but you know, when they do start dropping and the headlight, the headlines start publishing about, you know, how, how, you know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket in the real estate market. Those same people who said that they were going to go out and, and buy properties when they're prices drop now are too scared to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah they're frozen. Exactly. In fear. So, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and that's, all, that's how a lot of people are. And look, here's the thing. I mean, you know, the saying when, when it comes to real estate, you make your money when you buy the real estate. You know, not when you sell it. And and there's you can buy real estate in any market and make money off it. The problem is, is that I think a lot of people look at real estate like they want to they want to look at it as a get rich quick type of thing. It is not a get rich quick type of thing. It no, is a long term play. play. It is a yeah. generational wealth type of play. So if you want to build that, go into it knowing that. Right. Don't go in and start fixing and flipping and thinking that you're going to get rich. Fixing and flipping is just a job. That's all it is. That's a business right? model. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not a, investing. It's it's a business. It's a job. Exactly. It's it's not real estate investing, you know, because as soon as you sell that property, then you have no income coming in. Build yourself a portfolio that is going to be long term. That's going to sustain the ups and downs, because, look, the bottom line is, is real estate will always come back. It will always even if it even if it drops in some markets, it will always come back and rebound. And that's why it's like, for me, I don't care about the fluctuations over the next three to five years, because for me, it's a long-term play. It's always going to come back and we're always going to be able to make money off it. And we've cash flowed that whole time anyway, so it doesn't matter. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I loved our conversation. Uh, we, we got it. to dive deep into affordable housing in Section 8, which is, uh, is something that we don't often get to do on the right. show. So thank you for joining us. Uh, and uh, we'll look forward uh, to having you back pleasure. soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Have a great day. All right, everybody. We'll see you next Tuesday. Have a great week. Did you know we offer a free eight-video course on how to reach financial independence with real estate? It's super bingeable with each video around 10 minutes long, but packed with information. Visit sparkrental.com slash learn for instant access. And please don't forget to rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us, and we will catch you on the flip side. Yeah.